It's Family Sunday. Kids, how many kids got your note sheet with you? Here's your, here's your trick this morning. How many of you know what an open book test is? Open book test means I'm going to give you some of the answers on this whiteboard here in the back. Thank you, guys. And so all you have to do is you have to remember the Scriptures. Like, like if I say a book like Luke. How many of you know Luke is a book of the Bible? If I say, if I say a book... You can write it down, and if you get all the scriptures, and you get the one answer I'm going to put on the whiteboard, which I'm going to write up there, then you, then you get whatever prize Miss Christie has for you guys. So, um, it is Family Sunday, so in saying that, we, we must be gracious to the kids around us. They can be more vocal than us, so you can be vocal this morning and just say amen every once in a while. Hallelujah. You give a little... We can make it a joyous time, and yeah, come on. And if if you have a kid that's being extra exuberant, you are welcome to, without any judgment, take them. We have an open room back in the back, and so um, we're just glad that you're here. How many of you glad to be alive? Um, so, a couple years ago driving down St. Francis, which is the street that we have lived on for now two houses. We exited St. Francis for both of the houses that we live on when we go home. And I was telling this to God. said, Jesus, I choose to trust you. I choose to believe you. I remember this conversation and I want to tell you how I got here. So you can throw this first picture. This is a guy named Jacques Derrida. Look at that French pronunciation there. We could go Jack, um, as Americans would do. Jacques. It's actually a little bit of an A at the the end of it. You can look it up. I'm probably giving it too much of an A, but it's there nonetheless. Um, Derrida's famous thinker in the history of philosophy, and he started um, what most people call post-structuralism or, or the deconstruction movement. And um, he's important to note because they, like he's him and another couple of primarily French philosophers are are very popular in what we now call postmodernity. How many of you ever heard this term postmodern? You've probably heard the term, or you've heard me reference it. And what these guys made a focus on was like really simply put, and it's hard to simplify the work, but they made a focus on simply questioning the questioning the propositions and assumptions of Western civilization. And so um, one of Derrida's famous quotes is that there is no text out of context. Um, how many of you know like when we pre when we talk about the Bible, we try to give context for how things are understood and what the 
what the post-structuralist, deconstructionist, postmodern, that's a, that's a law word. The goal was, was to question this idea that there was actually a common thread of truth throughout human, like God revealing himself to human society and God revealing himself to people. And so this is what started this movement of deconstruction. You could pull his picture down. Now, fast forward, um, Derrida was, I think, was born in the 30s. I didn't look this up, so, but I think he was writing primarily in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, if I'm, my memory serves me. And he, fast forward 50, 60, 30, 40, you know, depending on however many years you want to look at it, the church world, ha- this has finally matriculated into the religious and church and spiritual world. And so how many of you ever heard somebody use this phrase, deconstructing? Raise your hand if you've heard somebody use that phrase. That's, that's common linguistics right now. Um, and it's, it's of the same essence of Derrida and Foucault and these guys, which was to question the assumptions, now not of Western civilization, but to question the assumptions that have been made, posited by the church over its period of time that it's been making statements about truth and who God is. And a lot of people have personally experienced this wrestling or this deconstruction. How how many of you have ever experienced some wrestling of truth in your life? And, And so for me, I went through a season, and I wouldn't say it's it's not the thing that primarily defines my current season, but I went through a season for three or four years where God was taking me through a process where I was, where he was, I hate the word deconstruction, first of all, but where we were, rest, we were wrestling through assumptions that I had made about him and about life and about how I lived in him. And let me say this, some of the things from this movement are actually really helpful because there have been assumptions, both societally and spiritually, that we have needed to question. How many of you have ever had, had an assumption that you believe to be true, that you found out, you know what, I don't know if I believe that. Raise your hand if you've had that happen. And so understand that this wasn't a predominant cultural thing for many years that we have these guys to thank for pushing us as a society towards questioning assumptions. But, like most things, there was also some bad elements to this. And so the, the, the end of this movement was not just to question everything, but to question if anything has any meaning whatsoever. And... Um, this sometimes hits you viscerally. So let me tell you, for me, what happened. There were three things that I realized in my own questioning process that three, three significant points I want to highlight to you. Because I felt God at work and the enemy at work in the process of my wrestling. Now, but mainly God. And I'll come back to that in a minute. For, First things was there were a lot of views that I had that were changed. I read the Bible differently after wrestling. I changed my view and assumption on what hell was and other things. How many of you have you sorted through some of these things? 
And so that's the first thing. The second thing that I found out, thank God, is that the foundation of my faith was not primarily the structure of my doctrine, but an inner witness that the Holy Spirit had given me to believe in Jesus. It wasn't primarily all the structured confessions, not that they aren't important, because they absolutely are. But what I found in my wrestling was that some people who were going in this process of deconstructing were losing their entire faith. And I realized that their entire faith was built on the structure of their set of doctrine. And for me, I recognized in the process that there was the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Third thing that I realized, and this is what will get us to Lent, is that I found all these sets of thinkers and Christians and believers who preached, who had lots of different kinds of conclusions. They didn't have the same view on everything, but they had one thing that threaded them together. They read the scripture as a narrative, but the most important thing is that the central figure of this narrative was this man named Jesus. And so piecing together the process of other people and my own process with God, I found that I I didn't need to agree on all the conclusions, but what I did agree on was that Jesus is the main figure of God's story and that God is telling a story. How many can say amen to that? Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. When we read these stories of Jesus that we will read in Lent, that we will read going up to death and resurrection, we are centering our lives on what Scripture calls the radiance of God's glory. That's like the shininess of His shininess, as somebody once, I heard somebody once say, and the exact representation of His being. He is the essence of God. He is the image of God. He is God. And immersing yourselves in these Scriptures by the Spirit in the lives and stories of Jesus, is the most grounding thing you can do. We want to build our life on the foundation. And who is the cornerstone? The Scriptures tell us that Jesus, as the central way of seeing Scripture, as the central way of seeing life, the central way of seeing our own lives, is the foundation. Amen? So let's read this week's text. Let me have another drink of water. I don't know what I did like that made me so parched, but that's right. Come on. Uh, (laughs) That's the kind of feedback I like. Arbitrary, consistent feedback. Um, (laughs) Luke 4, 1 through 13, you can read along. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Lord and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I want you to note this, verse 1, before I kept reading. Note this part, led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil, in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when he had ended, he was hungry. Then the devil said to him, 
If you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. But when Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, I will be yours. I feel like I should read the devil's, like maybe I should give like a serpentine. I'm kidding, I'm not going to do that. Jesus answered him and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone only shall you serve. Then he brought to him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt. In other translations, this says test. I think that's actually more accurate when you look at it. Shall not test the Lord your God. Now then the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. Okay. Next person. I give to you this morning as my gift to you Two French philosophers, <laughs> just just for just for fun. It's actually my birthday today. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, a little self-aggrandizing. Um, but um, it's my birthday today, and so I just get to reference these people because it's my birthday. And so this guy's name is Rene Girard. He looks more like a professor than any person that has ever lived. And um, Rene Girard's actually a Christian. He's a Catholic Christian. He wrote extensively on this theory in the 20th century called mimetic theory. I'm not going to explain to you mimetic theory today. Um, mimetic theory, there are some people who've considered him maybe the most important thinker of the 20th century. I'm not here to make that claim, but just stating that the claim has been made. And his work has influenced economics, theology, philosophy. Um, but here is the... Here's the key about Rene Girard that I want to draw out. Is that he developed his work on mimetic theory when he was teaching a class on literature. And he was, he was young in his professor life and he started teaching this class on literature. And in this class on literature, he was supposed to go through all of these novels. And the way that you typically teach them is you talk about what the novel is saying, how they're different from the other novels. But as he was teaching through them, he was more compelled by not how they were different, but by how all the novels were the same. How they were all teaching and in, implicitly, without intention, saying things. We call this, in thinking, we call this synthesis. And so let me tell you this today, before I start preaching this text, I want to admit to you that every time that I have preached this, this passage, which I've preached a number of times over the year, every, every year in Lent and other times, I felt like I was scratching the surface of this thing and like, like, a, like a kid trying to describe 
how the ocean works or how the elephant, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's just every time I preach this, I would get to the end of the sermon and think, this isn't that good. And so, um, while I was reading at this time, I wasn't thinking about René Girard. I'm not like all the time sitting around thinking about French philosophers. But I, but I noticed my brain started working in the idea of synthesis instead of like differentiation. So when I was reading these stories of the three temptations of Christ, how many of you have listened to somebody preach the three temptations? I've, I was seeing how they were all, like I've always heard them talk about how they were different, but, but in this particular day, the Holy Spirit was drawing to me how they were all connection connected and how all these temptations or all these tests were actually communicating one thing. And I want to argue with you. All right, kids, here's the, here's the, here's the uh, part that is open book tests. This is an Amway presentation. We're about to, let me show you how you can make $1,000 in a month. Quit your job. This is, that was really not very, I, I got a, I don't even have an eraser. It is what it is. All right, we'll go with it. So, kids, here, here's the, here's the thing. We have one circle in the middle. And we're going to talk about how all of these relate to one, and I think there is one critical lesson from Jesus in the wilderness. And just for fun, we're going to break down the other three a little bit, but it doesn't even matter. It matters enough that I'm saying it, but what matters is the one lesson we get out of Jesus in the wilderness. Everybody with me? And so, I'll come back to that. I think that there is a main message and we're going the, of these temptations and we're going to talk about that thesis. But I want to start by examining each question and what they're doing differently before I get to the main point. But I think the first question you need to ask if you're going to look at this is not what the enemy Every time I preach this, this is probably dumb of me, but every time I've, I've looked at this, I've started by looking at what is the enemy tempting him with. But I actually think the first question to ask here is what does Jesus say in the wilderness to the enemy? What does Jesus say? Jesus makes three statements, and I just want you to hear the statements without the other stuff. Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but... By every word that comes from the mouth of God. He also says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only Him shall you serve. And the last thing He has said is, it has been said, you should not test the Lord your God. I think that if you're a good like junior Bible quiz scholar um, from, your, from your childhood days, that you will know that Jesus is referencing, I think he says it in the passage, he's referencing Old Testament scriptures. But he's not 
just referencing any Old Testament scriptures. He's referencing very specific ones. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But it's important for us to see not necessarily what the enemy is saying first, but what Jesus is saying first. Because somebody answered me the question, who led Jesus out into the wilderness? It's not the enemy, but the Spirit. So that means that the primary thing that's happening in the, in the wilderness is not what the enemy is up to, but what who is up to? What the Spirit is up to. And so we're not going to highlight what the enemy is focused on. We're going to highlight what God is doing in the wilderness. Everybody with me on that? So Jesus, like what is clear, and this is in all the wilderness passages in Scripture, is that God has taken Jesus out into the wilderness to test him. The enemy is in the wilderness tempting him, but God is in the wilderness testing him. That's like a little amen. But anyway, I want to look though about what testing is from an engineering perspective. Jordan is not here, but I called Jordan Bishop who, who actually works on, the best way to say it is he's rocket scientist, engineer. I don't know how to put it, but he is an engineer. And so I've, I've been picking Jordan's brain about engineering for the last few months just for my own edification. And I called him yesterday and I was like, I want to, I want to ask you engineering questions about testing. So if you look at, if you look at an engineer, the way an engineers think about first principles, they think of things from their base up when they come up with trying to solve a problem. Here is the process. I could have written this up here, but I'm not going to. The process that an engineer goes through is that first of all, they define a problem or needs that, you know, they need things that, you know, something there's a need or there's a problem, they define it. Secondly, they do research. There's a lot of different ways to communicate this, but they go figure out all that is known about this problem or this need. Third thing is that they imagine or they create possible solutions to the need or the problem. Everybody with me? Fourth thing is they select a potential solution for said problem. The next thing is they develop a prototype. The prototype is the first product or solution or apparatus, whatever it is, that is going to solve said problem or meet said need. And then the next stage is to test, and then the last thing is to refine and improve until it's adequate. And so I was asking about the testing phase, and the focus of testing, if you're a good engineer, is that you actually are trying to cause the design to fail. You are looking for where you preemptively are like knowing based on your research and your thought, like you have some intel that there's a certain way to break this. And a good engineer is not trying to, they're not trying to um, not break it. They're actually looking for the way to break it. Now, why would you break it? To break it, you can actually improve the solution. You're already assuming that when you develop a prototype, there's going to be weak flaws. And the purpose of the breaking it is so you can refine it. Everybody with me so far? There's another purpose of testing, and that is to validate there's going to be some failure that, that's thought, 
And there also needs to be some validation that you're actually on the right path. And so the, the idea needs to be validated. So if we recognize that what is happening in the wilderness is not primarily the temptation of the enemy, but the test of God, then we need to think about this in terms of like God being a master engineer who's doing something. He's revealing something. Are you with me so far? The focus should not be on the temptation because who, who again led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. He's wanting to do something and he's testing. So I want to go back to prototype for a second. Humanity has a problem. We have a need. We need to be faithful to God, right? It's not just worship. It's actually good for us. Like we need to be faithful to God. And for the most part, there are some examples of faithfulness. But for the most part, we have not been very faithful to God in human history. That's, that's kind of the standard um, issue. And so Jesus, the Father in Jesus, has created an absolutely perfect prototype to solve the problem. There is no flaw in His design. And so when He takes Him out to test Him, he, all He gets is validation. There is no failure. The enemy is trying to derail Jesus, but God in the wilderness is proving Jesus to be worthy beyond anything else that humanity has ever seen. And the enemy is actually already defeated by the very fact that the prototype is existing in absolute perfect trust of his Father. The enemy is defeated in the wilderness while no one was watching before he was defeated on the cross with everyone watching. The game already over. Are you with me? So let's look at these statements. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. It has been said, you shall not test the Lord your God. So why these statements? So these particular statements aren't just random statements that Jesus just pulls out of random scriptures in the Old Testament. Jesus pulls these statements specifically out of the book of Deuteronomy. Two of them from Deuteronomy 6, one of them from Deuteronomy 8. Now, I want you to understand why this is important. The Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Torah, the last book that God gives to the people of Israel, and it's made up of different parts. The mi middle part of this book is just lots of commands. This is kind of like Leviticus, another place that people get derailed when trying to read the Bible in a year. The beginning of Deuteronomy is probably in argument. I don't know that there's actually, I think it is like, as far as like statements made of truth, 
the most important statements of truth made to the people of Israel about God and about life that they cherish, that, that Jews cherish, maybe more than any other text. Now, Exodus is the story of Israel, but Deuteronomy 1-11 through is like, this is like the capstone thesis of God. And in fact, two of the statements are from Deuteronomy 6. How many of you have ever heard this? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, it says, this is kind of understanding Deuteronomy, where we're at. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. How many of you have ever heard that one? That's called the Shema by the, by the Jews. It's like their most, like, I got to sit in Jewish synagogue a few weeks ago and watch, he, watch worship done in Hebrew. And I read from the, the transliteration. And this phrase is prayed over and over and over and over again. It's the foundational phrase. It's the foundational phrase from the great commandment. And so at the very end of Deuteronomy, I want you to understand what's actually happening why Jesus is referencing these particular texts. I won't take a long time. At the very end of Deuteronomy 6, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we've been along. He Basically, there's the question that's posited by the writer. What is the meaning of these testimonies, these statutes, these commandments? The question is posited in the text. And he finishes by saying, essentially, they, that we as a people were delivered out of Egypt by a mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God so that we could be brought into the good place of his pasture and so that God can be glorified and you can prosper. Like that is like the quintessence of this chapter. Are you with me? He's talking about prosperity, not the kind of prosperity that some people teach on TV. He's talking about fullness of prosperity, fullness of soul. And in Deuteronomy 8, which the second this is the second one that's referenced here. Um, it's the same idea. I'm going to just read Deuteronomy 8, uh, 6 through 10, so you can get this. This is like what's being communicated in the context of what Jesus is referencing. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing up to you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains of springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive and honey. Sounds like Garland, Texas. A land in which you will will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Then you have, when you have eaten and are full, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So this whole thing boils down to God is good. It's good to worship him because worshiping him will produce immense prosperity in your heart. I'm not talking about Ferraris. I'm talking about wholeness. Are you with me? And so with the three temptations, there is only one test. And I'm going to mention that test in a minute. God wants to prove this one thing in the life of Jesus. And he, will, he also wants the one thing to become sure in us. The enemy tempts Jesus with three, in three specific ways. I'm going to briefly list them because I'm, I think they're important to see. There's three 
types of temptations. If you disagree with these interpretations, doesn't matter because you can still agree with the main point. These are, these are of lesser importance, but I believe them enough that I wrote them down. So, let me make sure I have my notes. Okay, the first temptation, I'm going to fly through these, then we're going to go. Kids, here's the open book. You don't actually need to know this part. Don't worry when I write this word up here. I'm not going to be I recognize kids are in the room. So the first temptation is a sensual temptation. There is a, there is a sensual temptation. He asked him to tone, turn stone to bread, right? And in the, in the garden, if we go back into the garden, in Genesis, God provides men all of its sensual needs including the enjoyment of marriage and all that entails, including food, including like nice weather, 75 and sunny. He provides them all of the sensual needs in the garden. And this one is out of Deuteronomy 8. The second temptation he provides, and I need to explain this one, is vocational. Now, I want to make this point that all of these temptations are temptations to not trust in God's provision. Which in Genesis, the focus is on what has God provided. Why is this vocational? Vocational is like your work. That, that, for kids, that, that's your work. That's what we are, like what we're working with. So, in Revelation eleven fifteen. This is what it says about Jesus. This is at the end of all things. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded this trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Do you know what the vocation of Jesus is? The vocation of Jesus is to announce His kingdom so that the people can participate with His working in the earth. And that the ultimate end of that job is what? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. And every kingdom of this earth shall become the kingdom of our Lord. We can all say amen to that. That is the working of Jesus. And the enemy comes and tempts him to shortcut that, not through God's provision, but through the enemy's provision. Does that make sense? Just trying to fly through these so that we can get to the main thing. Um, the last thing he does is he gives him a spiritual temptation. He gives him a spiritual temptation. He tells him, he takes him to the top of a temple. What is it? What is it happens at a temple? Worship. He takes him to the top of the temple. He asks him to throw himself off the temple. And because of his spiritual standing, the angels will protect him. Now, when Jesus references here, do not test the Lord your God, how many of you have ever thought that was a weird scripture? I've never understood that until I went, I went through the whole threading. So when you go back to Deuteronomy 6, it says where he's referencing that, it says don't tempt him like you did at Massa. So then you have to go back to Exodus 17 when they were at Massa. And when they were at Massa, it's the time when, how many remember when Moses struck the staff? He made water come out. They did not have water. And God had told them to go to this place. And they start saying, take us out of this place. We need water. 
And Moses says, you're testing God, not trusting Him. And so they're trying to test their spiritual inheritance, their favor with God. And the enemy comes and tries to tempt him the same way. He's like, look at you, you're the son of God. Throw yourself off the temple, you'll be protected. And that is not trusting. In Genesis, God gives man sensual provision. He gives man vocational provision in that they are able to go and multiply and take care of the garden. And he gives them spiritual provision. They get to eat from the tree of life. Well, what does Adam and Eve do? What do they do? Somebody tell me. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they did not trust the spiritual provision that God had for them. And so the things that were tempted in the garden and the things that were removed from us in the garden were our our sensual, our vocational, and our spiritual provisions by God. And all of those things were cursed. The work was cursed. The fruit of the land that we would eat from and even the way that men would interact and men and women would interact in marriage was cursed. And finally, our ability to eat from the tree, the tree of life and to walk with Jesus in the garden, all of those things were cursed. Does this make sense? Okay, to the main point. There is one test. There is only one test. Kids, this is the this is the this is the note. There is one test. Well, I'm going to find that. Will Jesus trust the Father's plan? Jesus tells the disciples when they're interacting with him at the and and at the woman with the woman at the well. He tells them in John four. He says that my food is to do the will of him who sent it and to finish his work. Jesus' life is one test. I would argue with you that all of life is one test. Will we trust God? What is revealed in Jesus is that He is the perfect prototype. None of these places of weakness that were found within Adam and Eve or in our own lives, none of these places of weakness exposed Him. He was only validated as the ultimate solution to man's problem. All of life boils down to this one test. Will you trust God? Will you trust God? And Jesus' message in the wilderness boils down to this one question. Will he trust God? Yes. He trusts him. It was the same trust the same test in the Garden of Eden. Will you trust the knowledge of good and evil, the knowing of everything? Or will you trust the tree of life? 
This is why you are tested at every turn in one area. Will you trust Him? Here's the secret though, guys. The master engineer is not testing to reveal that you aren't worth it. He's testing to perfect and refine you. So I want to take you back down my drive. When I'm at St. Francis. I had done years of sorting, reading, learning, figuring the knowledge of good and evil. Years of it. Trying to explain my situation, trying to explain cosmology, trying to explain God, trying to understand it. And what it came down to was, I trust you, Jesus. I believe you. That's the question. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under the trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. I want to have you to come and grab the elements and let's go back to our seats and just be reflective of this one question.